0: We're going to talk about early photography today, and early photography is a significant part of the history of art because it introduces a new medium into art. As you might already know, a medium is, in art, a method that the artist uses to practice and implement in their art process, whether that's painting whether that's film, whether that's sculpture, or in this case, photography. So this is a new technology that's being introduced into the world. But the invention of photography is more than just a significant moment in art history. It can also be thought of as a story told by the storyteller, Louis-Jacques Malm-De Guerre, who was actually a romantic painter and printmaker, and well known for his dioramas, which are popular uh, Parisian spectacles featuring theatrical painting and lighting effects that told a viewer of some kind of three-dimensional story. But today we're talking about Daguerre for his own invention of the daguerreotype, which is a -a one-of-a-kind image on a highly polished silver plated sheet of copper or tin. And the story begins with his long search beginning in the 1820s for a means to capture fleeting images that he saw in the camera obscura. And his friend and partner on this mission, a man named Joseph Nysiphor Niepce, experimented with how to make a permanent image using light and chemistry Niepce was able to successfully use bitumen with an exposure time of eight hours on a tin metal sheet. However, the image that appeared on that tin metal sheet faded over time. While Niepce died in 1833, and Daguerre would have to complete their project solo. But in 1838, Daguerre reached a point in his experiments where the image captured through a long exposure would not fade away. And he used, he did this by using a sensitized iodine instead of the bitumen that Niepce used. And he reduced the exposure time from eight hours to 10 minutes. Now the first successful image of this is his photograph, Boulevard Le du Temps, Paris from 1838, which Was taken from the window of his studio. But the daguerreotype as a process, as a medium, was not actually patented worldwide until the following year in 1839. He was required to reveal and demonstrate that his daguerreotype process actually worked and also could be recreated and and used by other uh, artists or photographers in their studios. This image, Boulevard du Temple, is the earliest known photo of a person who, if you look closely, so on the image on our website, if you look at your computer screen, iPad, or phone, you'll see that there's a man who has stopped to have his boots polished. He's leaning over on the sidewalk, but the long exposure time of 10 minutes caught him, however, even though Daguerre was able to reduce that from the eight hours, still is not able to capture images of moving people over the course of several minutes. So you can imagine there's many moving bodies at this moment of time this image was captured, but they're not able to appear because they're just uh, exist as a blur essentially in this photo. And the image marks a turning point in the medium of photography. Now an image seen in real life could finally be captured and it wouldn't fade so it's actually something that is fairly permanent you know aside from aging and things like that that have happened since then. And the image was actually included in a triptych given to the king of Bavaria to celebrate the success of shortening exposure time The daguerreotype process was used to take portraits of people that were kept as keepsakes. A loved one could hold a portrait of someone for the first time in history. Each portrait is exquisitely detailed as well with really sharp clarity. And so this tells a -a one-of-a-kind story about this portrait and about this person. After they were developed with mercury and immersed in this sodium concoction, that kept it from fading, the daguerreotype is placed in an airtight frame, so these fairly small frames to protect the image, and that extends the quality and and lifeline of the photo. But you can imagine, of course, that this made sitting for portraits a bit difficult because of the long exposure time but they were popular among those who had the resources to get their portrait taken. And there were actually even stands or head braces that existed at the time to sustain a person's upright posture during the long exposure time. Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, an English fellow by the name of William Henry Fox Salvat, a true polymath who loved the fields of mathematics, chemistry, astronomy, botany, philosophy, philology, Egyptology, the classics, and art history. He was experimenting with capturing images using his scientific knowledge, his his knowledge of chemistry. And failed trials and tribulations led his desire to capture an image in its truest pictorial form to various attempts that were leading to disappointment, such as with the camera obscura, which is a small wooden box with a lens at one end that projects a scene before it, and that reflects onto a piece of frosted glass at the back where the artist could trace the outlines on thin paper. And also the camera lucida, which is an instrument that reflects rays of light through a prism so that they can be reflected onto paper where a drawing could then be made. So kind of similar. But echoing the same concerns of Louis-Jacques Montaguay, Talbot was searching for a permanent image without having to copy it by hand. And so he began to experiment with what became known as photographic drawings, in which salt is painted on a piece of paper. Then a natural object like a leaf or flower would be placed on a paper and out and put out into the sun so that the shape of the object would create a shadow on the salted paper. Upon hearing about Daguerre's invention of the daguerreotype, Talbot's competitive spirit was determined to find an even more efficient process for capturing a photographic image. Talbot discovered that an exposure of mere seconds, leaving no visible trace on the chemically treated paper, nonetheless left a latent image that could be brought out with the application of an exciting liquid, essentially a solution of gallic acid. And this discovery, which Talbot patented in February of 1841, is known as the calotype process. And this actually comes from the Greek meaning of beautiful or beautiful image. And this opened up a whole new world of possible subjects for photography. So not only can we capture architectural landscapes, but we can also capture different scenes with people in them as well. His work, Trafalgar Square, London, during the erection of the Nelson Column, is from 1843 and that's also on our website. And it's a well-known example of Hobbit's creations, it's a well-known calotype. But by converting a positive image into a negative, he was able to present an advantage over daguerreotypes which had to be printed on silver foil rather than paper. Thus the latter, the paper, allows for multiple copies to be made. And although the images were less sharp as you can see, and not as clear as the images from daguerreotypes, there was, or there is, an aesthetic quality to the tonal beauty of calotype images. I'm looking at the Trafalgar Square calotype, and the Nelson Column, named after a navy captain in Trafalgar Square, who, um, which is a historic site known for the famous battle that took place there during the Napoleonic Wars, depicts an interest in a straightforward view of an everyday setting but also with these compelling layers of history. So we have the church in the background and this historical architectural structure in the foreground. His process though, lacking the clarity as I mentioned of the daguerreotypes had one distinct advantage from a single negative scores, even hundreds of them, of virtually identical photographic prints could be produced. And their paper support made them more easily integrated into the realm of graphic arts. So they could be pasted in albums, they could be matted and framed like engravings or into printed books. Then we have Charles Neg, who is a French photography, excuse me, a photographer who also used the calisite process depicts an architectural scene in his calotype from 1853, The Vampire. And he's another example of someone who works in this process, but he was famous for capturing visual juxtapositions and architectural views while using Talbot's um, calotype negative process, allowing multiple copies. And he is picturing here a man named... um, Henri Lissec, who is known for his photographic surveys of architecture. The French government was very encouraging of documentation of architecture at this time in the mid-19th century. And he's pictured next to a gargoyle bursting forth from the Notre Dame Cathedral, which is this Gothic cathedral in the middle of Paris. And this image was part of a series of documenting Paris. But the contrast between the human figure of Lussek and the gargoyle creates this relationship between animate and inanimate, which in photography is uh, still an exciting subject matter. And following the 1848 revolution in Europe that is leading to the fall of monarchic states, this is also seen as a nod to the Gothic horror novel, Dracula, by Bram Stoker, who, which is when it's intertwined with the Gothic cathedral, it brings architectural, visual, and liter- literary arts into a single image. And this interest, as I mentioned, in photographing architectural sites remained a strong facet of 19th century belief in progress and ultimate perfection of civilization through science and technology. Even as use of prints expanded, photographs such as this one by Jay Kuhn of the Champs-de-Mar in the Eiffel Tower um, and this is on silver albumen paper, is another example of showing this perfection of civilization. This photograph is later in the 19th century and it shows the gateway at the entrance of the Universal Exposition of 1889, which is celebrating the centennial of the French Revolution. A few years later, Englishman Frederick Scott Archer exhibited photographs produced from a new type of negative, replacing Talbot's paper negatives with sheets of glass co- coated with an element called collodion. And exposure times were greatly shortened with Archer's technique, and the resulting prints were far sharper than the callotypes because they had this shortened exposure. For many, Archer's glass-negative process seemed to combine the best of the daguerreotype, its clarity, with the best of the calotype, which is its reproducibility. A man known by his legendary pseudonym, Nadar, used this collodion plate process, and he was notorious for his photographic portraits, but he was also this bohemian left-wing playwright and journalist, among other roles. And one of those roles was pushing his brother, who was a lackluster portrait painter at best, into photography. But as he was doing this, he he piqued his own interest in the camera. And he eventually installs a darkroom in his garden apartment um, on Rue Saint-Lazaire and tried out the new technique on friends who came to visit this collodion glass plate process. And eventually him and his brother have this quarrel about business and money and, uh, you know, wanting to be the Nadar June, which is the young Nadar in French. Um, So ultimately they separate and Nadar does his own thing. He has his own studio. It's very successful. Um, There's a photo of it on our website here. You can see the big uh, sign Nadar sprawled across the building. And it, this photograph that we're looking up here of Sarah Barnhart, she later became a very famous actress, but he was interested in subjects who were not necessarily famous or well-known yet so that he could capture their psychological states. Uh, But it was always very staged. As you can see here, she's clearly adorned in these draped, um, this draped fabric and she's leaning on what is maybe like a pedestal that is in his studio. Um, she looks beautiful. She looks very done up and ready to have her portrait taken. So, um, but this, again, it would have been in her early days. As soon as people came, became too famous, he actually just would have his studio assistants kind of deal with them. And he wasn't as interested in it from a personal artistic standpoint. But another significant photographer who worked in this medium is Julia Margaret Cameron and in 1863 she receives a camera as a gift. But this was a time when cameras did not just fall into the lap of any person or amateur. That didn't really become possible until the Kodak was invented in 1888. But Cameron was a well-to-do woman. She came from a wealthy family. And in 1863, she was 48. She was a mother of six. Uh, She was very religious, well-read, and somewhat eccentric. And she also had a very elite circle of friends, some of Victorian England's greatest minds, including scientists like Charles Darwin, and also Sir John F.W. Herschel, who we have his portrait on the website. And she may have taken up photography as an amateur and sought to apply it to the noble non-commercial aims of art, but she immediately viewed her activity as a professional one. And she was vigorously exhibiting, publishing, and marketing her photographs, especially as she took the more well-known portraits um for example this one here of Sir John F. W. Herschel and this helped her gain more of a reputation because he was a well-represented subject Uh, he was very well known at this time and she used the wet collodion process to create an image with dramatic chiaroscuro effects so we'll talk about what that means it's uh, different Differentiation of light and shadow, this contrast. And she wanted her photographic work to reach the status of artistic medium on par with the aesthetic qualities of painting. And she often allowed the wet process to create mistakes, or what art historian Robin Kelsey calls glitches, and that is in your reading that I've assigned. And These glitches are a sign of the artist's hand and in her opinion, strengthened the artistic quality of her work and the platform of photography on par with painting. Um, So Kelsey writes, quote, Cameron invited, preserved and defended signs of sloppiness and chance in her photography when other serious practitioners were seeking to eliminate them. Whereas Talbot emphasized the accidental encounter, Cameron highlighted the play of chance in the optical, chemical, and material process of photography. In doing so, she brilliantly negotiated a host of contradictory Victorian commitments." End quote. And interested in portraits in particular, she tried to capture the personality of the sitter spending a lot of time with them or taking photos of people that she already knew fairly well or very well. She also took photos of her family as well. Smaller albumin prints known as carte de visite became popular at this time of the 1860s and people started to collect carte visites, which became objects of famous people so photographs of famous people or images of friends and family and people would collect them how they collect daguerreotypes but this time it was much easier to make more of them and have reproducibility that we got from the callotype and collodion albumin paper technology and also put them on this kind of card backing so that they had some longevity, that the paper wouldn't get too flimsy or something like that. Thinking of it in terms of contemporary collecting of baseball or Pokemon cards, which I don't think a ton of people do anymore, but um, that's our sort of contemporary reference to understand why people would be interested in collecting these kinds of things. Sometimes it was of people they knew, and sometimes it was of famous people like Empress Eugénie, who we have in our on our website as well. And this is by Disserie. She's wife of Napoleon III, which is during the Second French Empire. And this is a typical celebrity photo of the time. Her pose is emphasized, um, the dress is emphasized, the setting is all emphasized, it's very staged, and she's depicted in this private moment looking at a photo album. Um, She's dressed according to the latest French fashion, and it's a photo that translated the ideal image of 19th century womanhood. So carte visites were often full-body portraits of the sitters, and this might be a reference to full-length portraits of rulers who had their portraits commissioned by painters. Um, during monarchic rules. And we will talk more about pictorialism, which is another facet of photography in another lecture. But note that the late 19th century also brought experimentation of photographic negatives into slightly manipulated compositions such as the photo um, by Henry Peach Robinson, who began his photographic career with an interest in medieval settings, and later developed a form of narrative genre photography. And in this print, Robinson is showing a small text to enhance the reading of the photograph, as well as the characteristic of his own narrative style. So this was something that he often did alongside his photographs. And pictured in a pastoral scene, he's staging his pictures he would hire models to pose as the figures in his photographic prints um, but this kind of pastoral setting was favored in the victorian era as well and since at this time there was no proper technology to capture an entire large scene in focus he shot several sections and combined negatives to create a combination print um, so being a, fi- a pictorialist photographer This means that, you know, as we have observed in this photograph, it's of a larger scene, but it's something that he's imbuing his own subjective vision onto. It's not necessarily depicting objective reality, but that's not important in in pictorialism. It's much more about the photographer's vision of what something should look like, of what a photograph should look like. And the, often the photographer's vision for what that narration is requires some kind of manipulation or staging of the image.